It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Happy Sunday morning. Happy early Sunday morning. And welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. We're going to jump right in. I am delighted for the person that I'm bringing to the front of the class this morning. He was among the original guests that I had listed when I first conceived of this show. And I'm finally grateful that we were able to make this happen, everything in due time. He is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, former lieutenant governor of Maryland, a political commentator, an attorney, and for the first time joining the Sunday Civics community, welcome to the show, the amazing Michael Steele. Hey, 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 hey. How are you? Joy, good to be with you. Thank you so much. Finally, Listen, right? I know. I've, it's taken a long time to get you here, but you came at the right moment. That's what I believe. <laughs> well, it's good to be here. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate being at the front of the class. This is the first. <laughs> Normally, I'm that brother in the back going, okay, this is safe space back here. <laughs> No, we're bringing you to the front for you to, you know, talk and engage and, you know, um, helpfully have conversations with folks who may, you know, have different political ideology. Sure. But, you know, I definitely want to bring that level of conversation and discourse to to demonstrate that you can have that level of discourse, that you can disagree on different things, but there are ways that you can continue to work together and continue to be in the same community together. So I think this is the beginning of that conversation where we're talking to different folks and discussing how you have dialogue with people right. who have various political ideologies. Yeah. But since this is your first time on the show, I'm going to start where we do with everyone uh -huh. by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Wow. Well, that's, that's actually very interesting because I grew up in Washington, DC um, at a very interesting period in our nation's history. So a lot of the big national stories that were unfolding, unfolded in my backyard. I grew up in the Petworth area. So I was literally about, you know, three or four miles from Capitol Hill. And I remember probably the very first civic engagement um, was around probably the mid-70s. The Vietnam War era had ended in 75. And then you had of course, Watergate and a lot of the a lot of the, the social protests on civil rights and you know issues around our community uh, really kind of awakened me. And uh, I guess probably my first civic engagement was going out and and just trying to get people involved around the idea of making DC a state. And as a native Washingtonian, not represented fully in the United States Congress, recognizing that, um, you know, my parents weren't allowed to vote for president until 1964. It was the first time D.C. residents could actually vote for president of the United States. Uh, and watching all these big things happen in my backyard 
and not being able to really feel a big part of it because our representatives and our leadership was not allowed to uh, fully represent us in the Congress. That, I think, was probably my first uh, real big civic moment when I was fighting for getting voting rights for the people in my community. And that is still going on today. (laughs) I mean, with a different um, all that work, right? Right. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes things take you know time, as you know the the elders used to tell me when I you know be wanting to go out in the street and like (laughs) you know rally stuff, and they're just like patience and perseverance. Yeah. But you know, we're at a point now where perhaps you know, that we could get to that point, but there are certainly people still opposed to it, which really doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I'll be honest with you, for me, the, that, that particular battle has never been so much about statehood per se, as it is about giving folks the representation they deserve um, in, in the Congress, in the Senate, uh, and so that we are full members. Um, you know, we are 600,000 people who are, you know, we're bigger than four states. And, and it's just, you know, it's just unconscionable. Um, so we began this battle. I worked in Walter Frontroy's office at the time as, um, as a staffer. And it just was an amazing experience to be able to be a part of pushing out this effort to get the rest of the country to recognize the people who lived here deserve the same things that they had. And uh, here we are, you know, uh, from 1978, uh, when we worked on, when we finally got that bill through Congress and pushed out to the states, and only, well, I believe 13 states uh, eventually agreed to it at that time. And that took almost 20 years to where we are right now. But it is a matter of perseverance and persistence. And uh, my hope is that whether it's in full-fledged statehood or if it's just recognizing, okay, you get two senators and a congress, a congressman or a congresswoman. It's about the representation. That's that's the piece that needs to be fulfilled. And you know, as an attorney, and me only one that actually reads, you know, constitution and you know debates and others. I can't say that I'm licensed. I got, <laughs> look, I got two. <laughs> but you know, it's it's always interesting to me how we have principles, right, of American democracy, and that we sometimes can focus more on tradition and institution rather than the principles that the country is created based upon. So if we're created on equitable representation, equal representation and peace, right, you go back to your values, then the institution needs to be able to change this man-made institution needs to be able to change in order to fit the values we say right well, yeah. so th- yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting point and i i really love the way you put it because what oftentimes happens is that our values inform our institutions our principles they kind of shape those that then become policy but then in a weird sort of kind of like wraparound, those institutions and those policies wind up shaping and some would argue reshaping our values. And, and so it is in that space that this the creativeness of, a, of an idea like the United States of America is formed. 
the men who fled England at the time fled because of the oppression of government and the repression of their rights and the refusal to acknowledge them as free men. They come here, right? And then set up a system in which they enslave otherwise free men. And, and yet they, they have the words and the language and the idea and the values around freedom that they, they carve in stone and they put on parchment and they say this defines who we are and yet their policies and their practices and their institutions are antithetical to that. But here's the genius of it. And this is why I believe, you know, and a lot, I, a lot of people look at me cockeyed when I say this, but that there's something about this country that, it, that has, a, has that little hint of the divine. Because despite all of that, those words have been the source of our freedom and our civil rights that we now can hold up as a mirror to the country um, and say, well, does this still matter? Do you still believe this? And since we've been here, we landed here the same time you did. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know, we're not going to sit here and have a debate over 1619, baby. We know what happened. Right. Yeah. Y'all don't want to appreciate that history. Well, we're going to help you appreciate it because it's in your documents. And so I think that that's really exciting for me, at least right now, to see, particularly among African-American intellectuals who are writing and thinking about this stuff. Folks like yourself and myself who have platforms that can give expression to this and hold up that mirror through our conversations um, that the world is now beginning to see exactly what we've been saying for 400 years. You know, we're part of this story, too. You wrote us in and didn't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> or at yeah. least didn't appreciate it. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the reason I wanted to chat with you and you've been on my list for some time, I, I've done a show before talking about political ideology versus political party. Right. And that there, you know, you practice or exert your political engagement through a political party, but that doesn't mean, you know, your political ideology always matches up. And so, for instance, you describe yourself as conservative. Right. So which is a political ideology and you are politically engaged, uh, at least majority of your career through the Republican Party. Right. So I want to start with first, just to repeat this difference for folks with you defining what conservative political values are to you and then how you exert that through the Republican Party. Well, so. I think it's important to appreciate a couple of things here um, because we have we have sort of glommed them all together in our in our execution uh, at such that it is now almost impossible to separate them. A political party is not the same as a political ideology. One really informs the other. And so you bring your ideology into the party. The party is, is a vehicle, is a platform of expression because within that system, there can be a range of views on any given topic. But there, are, there should be some common ideas that define what that party is. And it is typically uh, pulled from 
those ideological positions or perspectives that an individual or a group of people may have that that sort of align themselves. So for me as a young man, it was really kind of the discovery of first history about the parties, second exploring how that history informs and shapes their their present actions. And then what else animates that, the, the philosophies? So you look at republicanism up until the 1980s was basically had very strong libertarian bent to it, meaning, you know, we don't want the government getting in, involved in anything between, you know, uh, the individual and, you know, their jobs and their families and their communities. Um, so limited government um, uh, interference in the day-to-day lives of everyday people. And then, of course, looking at some of the other economic philosophies that flow from the free markets, you know, again, consistent with the idea of limited government interference, uh, lower taxes, again, not confiscating uh, more from, from the individual than the government needs. And that goes back to the founding of the country in many respects. So you find these pieces that, that sort of define your, your idea. But for me, what was most important is why I define myself more as a Lincoln Republican than just a Republican or just as a conservative is that for me, fundamentally, it goes back to what we started the conversation about, and that is those rights, those rights enumerated in this in these documents, right? In the Bill of Rights, in the Constitution, these finding, founding ideas about the individual rights and liberties and freedoms. The battle of the Whig, within the Whig party in the 1850s was over the idea of free men and free women, slavery. Um, and how how this new country should should deal with that. And there were very tepid souls and very brave souls on that point that animated that discussion. Uh, and ultimately, those who, who wanted to use these constitutional ideas to free men from the bondages that they found themselves in, particularly black men and women, broke away uh, and formed this idea that these documents will mean something, these words matter. And that for me has been how I look at this. It's not, le- it's not so, oh yeah, I'm, pro- I'm pro-life. I'm pro Well, you know, pro-life wasn't a political thing until the 1980s, the, you know, when the Republicans put it in their platform, you know, seven years after Roe versus Wade. So we're all jacked up about Roe versus Wade. Why didn't they put it in the, in the you know, in the 76th convention? They didn't because... The idea was you don't want to take something like that that is a personal decision, that is uh, something that should be decided with in given communities and elevated to the point where government plays a role in that process. Uh, and so those ideas uh, for me were very animating and, and sort of um, mattered to me. You know, conservatism is about conserving. What are you conserving? What's in the Constitution? That's how you conserve your liberties. Um, you protect those liberties. It's not about the, you know, what we see conservatism being articulated today is this bastardized form of stupid. Uh, it's just not. It, it's just not about putting kids in cages and and uh, you know being afraid of people and 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 embracing racism. That's not conservatism. That's just ignorance. That's fear. That's stupidity. 
Um, and it is disheartening to see so many of these so-called conservatives giving into that because they're afraid of you and me uh, and what we mean in this century and what we will accomplish in this century and losing sight of the fact that the Constitution allows us the freedom to do that on our terms. And, and that's, what's make, that's what makes this country so unique and why, despite everything else, people still want to find their source of freedom here, find their new beginnings here. And we always have. There are only two groups that aren't immigrants to this country, the Native Americans and Black folks. And yet we stand today as a testament to perseverance and the idea that at some point, you know, as Dr. King and, and the civil rights movers and shakers said, free at last, free at last, right? You don't give up. Um, and, and so that for me is, is, is really what conservatism should be about preserving and conserving for the country is what's in these documents and why they still matter. You know, that's before we take a break, I want to just step back and talk about how you made that decision that conservatism, because you talked about making the decision as a, a, a young person. Right. And I remember personally, you know, my family is all over the place in terms of political ideology. Right. My mother up until Obama's election was a Republican, voted Republican, right? So I grew up in a household with Republican. My stepfather was everybody's corrupt, <laughs> you know, my father, my father served in the military. And so he was, you know, not a party person. It was based upon individual candidates right, and others. Right. right. So everybody's all over the place. Right. And I remember going to college, went to a liberal arts college here in New York. And when I got involved in electoral politics, the first campaign, because I thought I was a Republican because my mom is a Republican. Right. Was a, a black Republican mayor in Hempstead, New York. Yeah. Right. So, you know, so I was like, oh, because I'm a Republican. But I've talked about on the show before, like making a conscious decision right. and looking at, you know, well, what do I believe about what what in defining for myself with my political ideology and saying, oh, well, it doesn't fit with being a Republican. It fits with, you know, this. Right. But right. it was a conscious decision. But most folks make the decision based upon, like I did early on, what my parents were, <laughs> you know, so therefore I must be. How did you make the decision for yourself? Well, and what did you suggest to people to do that? You, 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 just, you just took me back to when I was 17. Um, so 76 uh, was my first presidential election uh, as a young man. Um, and for the better part of that year, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I'm about to go register uh, to vote uh, that November. I turned 18 in October get to vote a few weeks later um, uh, in the, my first presidential election. And so I sat down with my mom and I'm having this conversation about, you know, what I should do. And I grew up in a Democratic household. My mom and dad were both Democrats, Roosevelt Democrats. We had one aunt in the family on my dad's side who was a Republican and no one talked to her and I wasn't allowed to speak to her. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, she's, she's special. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, but when I sat down with my mom and I said, you know, I, I, what, you know I'm, I'm thinking about this. What, what should I do? And she looked at me and she said, well, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Uh, mm. don't, don't, you know, do 
don't be a follower. Set your own course. Decide what you want to do. You know, go and figure out what these parties are about and then figure out where you fit in and make a difference when you do. I'm like, okay. And so I went off and I, and I, you know, took some time and I, you know, looked, you know, grabbed the encyclopedia. Uh, and for you young folks, that's a book that has a lot of facts in it. <laughs> um, uh, so I grabbed, I grabbed the encyclopedia and, and I went to the local library over at Petworth and, you know, started doing a little reading and, and research, talked to some folks, didn't know a lot of Republicans because I was growing up in DC, <laughs> Republicans in DC um, at that time. And probably still. But the reality of it was, um, what I learned was the Republican Party is my, our political home. And despite what, what the situation was today in this moment, um, this is where we began. This is, we had a hand in founding this party, believe it or not. You know, our cause became their cause. Uh, those, those folks who wanted to break away from a system of repression and slavery, uh, those abolitionists who wanted to abolish the thing that that enslaved my my great great uh, grandparents and and you know people in my community, so that resonated with me in a real way. I didn't get caught up in the whole, you know, are you pro this or anti this? Are you for that or against this? You know, for me it was how how all these pieces came together, and then of course this my mom, who God bless her, still. And 93 calling the shots, right? She, you know, very strong, independent woman. And while she was a Democrat, she sort of exhibited some, you know, conservative, putting quotation marks. And I would say, again, not, not in the raw political sense of conservatism, but this idea that I've got the, I've got the power uh, to make decisions that best, you know, affect and impact my family. Um, so I remember talking with her, at, you know, my dad died when I was very young from al from alcoholism. And um, so, you know, at this point in my life, I'm sitting and we we're talking about a lot of things. And I remember asking her at one point, I was like, so why did you never go on public assistance? Because she was telling me how when my dad died, you know, I was probably about four or five years old. And, you know, she was a young black woman, you know, living in D.C. with a kid. So our parish priest was like, you should really get help from the government, go on public assistance. Her, her sisters were telling her, you know, maybe oh, you crazy, you gotta go and get some help. You know, you can't raise this kid by yourself. And my mother looked at me and she said, I decided I didn't want the government to raise my child. She didn't want to be dependent on the institution. That was her choice. It wasn't, you know, she wasn't poo-pooing it for somebody else, mm -hmm. but for her, she had made the conscious decision that, you know, God and she would make a way. And that just like, boom. And so as I looked at a lot of the, the conversations at that time in politics, I was struck by, you know, Republicans who sounded like my mom in that regard, talking about that individual, you know, resilience and ability to provide for your family and things like that. So it's sort of in sort of in a backdoor way, I kind of said it made sense to me. And so of course, here's the rest of the story. When I go to my mom and said, I've, I've decided I'm going to register as a Republican. And she looked at me and go, now why would you want to go do that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like you 
told me to the choice. choice. I didn't tell you to make the wrong choice. Right, right. <laughs> Her expectation was, okay, you go off and you do that little education thing you're going to do, but you know you're coming back home because that's where I am. And I was like, well, mom, okay, but no, I think I'm going to do this. And so that's been my, you know, and, I, and I've been an outlier ever since. <laughs> well, on the other side of the break, I'm going to talk about it because I'm going to tell you the story of how I first became aware of you uh, and sort of, yeah, so we'll talk a bit about that. We'll take a quick break. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Okay, welcome back. I'm talking to Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, former lieutenant governor from Maryland, political commentator, all of the all of the descriptions and adjectives there. But so Well, look, so I became just to tell you a story, I became aware of you and I'm a, everybody knows I'm a political nerd, so, you know, this would not right. be a surprise. But during the 2004 Republican convention, I think oh, yeah. it was in New York. In New um, York. Yeah, I love that convention. And I was a staffer on I was the early on in my like DNC like career piece or whatever. So I was the operations assistant or whatever for the rapid response team. Like, okay. you know, in DC. So like we were we were the ones planning all of the, you know, protests and also right, right, <laughs> uh, yeah. the you daily responses. Pieces on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, just a little thing anyway. And so I remember, you know, I think it was like the second night or something like that that, you know, you gave remarks. And I was like, is that a black Republican? <laughs> like It was just like. <laughs> I re- like I remember being in the boiler room and just was like, who is that? Right. <laughs> like being, and I was like, well, now I need to find out about this person and <laughs> like or whatever, which is what I do. And then, you know, fast forward to, you know, and I learned more about you. I learned about like, you know, studying for the priesthood and all the stuff like that. And I was like, oh, he, he, my people, like what, like what, you know, and, you know, fast forward and then, you know, you're running for to, you know, to be the chairman. Right. And I was like, oh, maybe we can, maybe we can get to a point where there's an actual, you know, discussion and dialogue and diversity and black folks, you know, political ideology. Now I know there exists, not even with Republican or Democrat, there is a diversity of political ideology in black communities. We are presented as if we're only, you know, Democrats. But if you actually live and engage in Black communities, there are people all over the place. Right. <laughs> you know, there are people right. who are libertarian. They may not define themselves as libertarian or oh, Republican right. or, you know, things like that. But if you have dialogue and engage and know communities, you know, we are a political diversity even within Black communities. Right. And so when I saw, you know, that you become chairman sort of in this national scale, I was like, oh, we'll have an opportunity you know, to sort of demonstrate the diversity of political engagement that happens within our communities. It's like, I go to think tanks where we're arguing back and forth, you know, right. political, you know, and all at peace. So, you know, I, I thought from then, and then I I went back last night and looked at my Twitter, looked up your like old to free, whatever. It's like, what did I say about Michael Steele before? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What did you say? <laughs> I was like, what did I say? You know, but it was, it was like, oh, this is interesting. We should, you know, engage here. Here's a, an opportunity to demonstrate. 
But then, you know, I'm consistently disappointed going back to our conversation about political values, that things that, you know, both you say and others say that should be Republican political right. values, whether it's on issues of police brutality. I remember trying to get Republicans on the asset forfeiture, you know, for police, and, you know, they wouldn't support. I was like, I don't understand. This fits your values. <laughs> you know, so where does this divide come? And, you know, I see you publicly say how disappointed and, you know, frustrated you are, about, you know, about that divide when it comes to Black people and our issues. Like, how do, how do you try to do a Black political recruitment on a conservative side, on a Republican side, when you have these very glaring, you know, hypocrisy happening? Well, you have to be serious about it in the first instance. You have to want it in the second instance. Um, one of the things that uh, I pushed when I became national chairman, which was consistent with what I did when I was county chairman here in Prince George's or state chairman here in Maryland, um, was to call it out. <laughs> I have a tendency to make people very uncomfortable and they, they, don't, they, they don't like me very much in my party. And that really doesn't bother me because that's your issue, not mine, because you tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me when I, where I'm wrong when I say that you're, you're expressing an attitude and an ideology that is inconsistent with our history that is inconsistent with whom we are. Now I can go to the historical footnotes and show where you got off the rails. Goldwater in 64, Nixon in 68, um, you know, Reagan sort of, sort of, you know, wink and nod when he launched his campaign in 1980 down in Mississippi, right? We can show that. We can also show, you know, certainly in the last four years, we have countless reference points, right? Um, of, of where the party has been inconsistent with its values. So here's the mirror, take a look because this is you. And one of the things that, you know, I realized in my first week on the job when I announced that we were gonna go to Harlem to do a town hall on healthcare. The Obama administration had, been, had just launched um, uh, their conversation on healthcare and launched their conversation on, on cap and trade. And I said, well, we're going to go do, uh, have a conversation in Harlem. And folks inside the party is like, well, why are we going to Harlem? <laughs> I'm like, well, because that's where the voters are, right? You say you want them to vote for you, right? You got to go there and talk to them. And the reality of it is, um, I realized, no, they, 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 like, they like to see those words on paper. And they like to read about it in the news. Oh, you know, the RNC today announced, uh, you know, a uh, campaign to attract the black vote. But then you look and you see there's no money behind it. There's no full expression at the state level because that's where it matters. It doesn't matter what the RNC chairman says. It's what the county chairman is saying. And if the county chairman ain't down with bringing them black folks, guess what? They're not bringing in black folks. They're just not. Um, so my point to the party was, you just can't sit there and say, oh, blacks are conservatives like we are because they go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and we saw the replay of that, what, 11 years later, you know, 10 years later after I've left the RNC, 
when Donald Trump comes out and goes, well, black unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. <laughs> so, yeah. What about Trayvon Martin? What about George Floyd? What about the redlining of our communities? What about the fact that after all this time in our cities, black kids are still disadvantaged educationally? You have kids now in this in this era of COVID who've just given up on class. Why? Because they don't have Wi-Fi in their homes, right? So talk to me about the things that matter to my community. You know, when Donald Trump went on his screen against Baltimore City, um, because, well, that's where black folks live. And and I went to Baltimore with Reverend Al Sharpton. We were actually there for something very different to talk about a housing effort that we were behind and supported. And and so, of course, I'm like, well, dude, you, you, I'm not going to let this go. And Because Al was like, well, you want to address what the president said? Yeah, damn sure I want to address it. So I got up and I addressed the president's, you know, slamming Baltimore as a place where nobody, no human being would want to live. Given all the human beings who live there, I lived there when I went to school at Hopkins, right? And and I was like, well, Mr. President, since you feel that way, come to the neighborhood. I'll invite you. Let's go. Let's go up to Coppin State University. Let's go to. Let's go hang out. You know, in, in on on down in the neighborhood at the barbershop and talk to the people, and you can explain to them why no one should live here. And they'll explain to you why they do. I'm still waiting for that meeting. <laughs> so if, if you want to be serious about our community, then take us seriously. And don't just throw this, this bull up at us about Black unemployment or talk about the fact that we go to church on Sundays or that we're entrepreneurial and turn a blind eye to the fact that you referred to my ancestors as coming from shithole countries or that you've now embraced Proud Boys over, over the pride of civil rights. So I, I just, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I think I've gotten to the point, Joy, where, you know, I get this all the time. Why are you still Republican? I say, well, I'm still Republican because it pisses them off. So you you just you're you're my husband's kind of petty. My husband loves you know petty stories, and he's just like, oh no, this is he's just being petty. Okay, I'm for it. I'm for it. <laughs> right, I'm gonna be petty right with you. And and the reason why because I I want to be that mirror. I want I, this is I want to reflect back to you the crazy that that the rest of us are hearing. Um, and the easiest thing to do is to leave. And I, you know, I've, you know, had some wonderful, uh, loving, but intense conversation with some of my friends who've left. And I've said, don't go, because that's the easy part to go to do is to leave, um, you know, stay in the fight for as long as you can. Yeah, I'm not I'm not crazy. I know there comes a point where you go, OK, <laughs> this is, there's you can only help someone to the extent that they really want to be helped. Joy, you know that. Right. We all have. We all have that moment in our family when everybody's getting around and trying to help Junior, right? And Junior's like, I don't want y'all help. Okay, and you know what? And, and then you know in the moment when the matriarch goes, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> right, yep, that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's right? it. There's no, and then guess what? Everybody in the family backs off. Everybody, okay, <laughs> Junior, you're on your own because <laughs> Mama just said, you're done, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want mm -hmm. the help. 
um, doesn't mean you don't have our love and our concern, but we can't help you if you don't want the help. And in the party right now, as they keep running back to Donald Trump, as they just did last week, you know, RNC spent $100,000 for what? Right. To go down and listen to this man continue a lie about the election and to sit there and applaud that stupid, that ignorance to to ignore uh, what happened on January 6th, to have Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz walking around like, you know, you know, OK, I'm going to be good here. Let's just say walking around, <laughs> claiming, <laughs> you know, all of this, all of this crazy about uh january 6th and, and talking about oh you know antifa this and then no that was not antifa that was trump and you have we have people on tape saying donald trump told me to be here ain't nobody antifa listening to any damn thing donald trump is saying so the reality of it is let's be honest about where we are and what we're doing because the world is watching and our eyes aren't lying to us. Our ears aren't lying to us. And that's going to be that's going to be hard to overcome in future elections as that pool of voters shrinks. You know, well over a million people have left the GOP since January 6th. How do you grow a party when you're losing a million people every three months? Well, but, you know, between that, because some of the same you know, quite often I'm in conversations where we're talking about the ills of the Republican Party. And then people say, well, you're a Democrat. And I was just like, you know, I ain't loyal like they loyal because the, the Democratic Party got their own drama. Oh, too. Got, that we, uh, <laughs> you know, that okay, we find the count. <laughs> right. I was like, so the, the parties themselves, both of them have issues. And quite often, a lot of it has to do with how they are treating people of color and black folks in terms of being with, you know, being within the space. Now, I'm of the personal belief, although, you know, I identify as a progressive and old school black progressive, not new progressive right. piece, whatever that's happening. But I'm also of the belief that I think the party structure that we have is, you know, there's no way with the amount of population that we have, the diversity of political ideology, that all of that only fits into two parties. It doesn't. Right. And it so doesn't. it doesn't make sense to me to have a Bernie Sanders and a Hillary Clinton in the same party. It doesn't make sense to me to have a Michael Steele and a Donald Trump in the same party. Right. Because there are while they may share certain values and certain things, you know, there is this diversity of thought. And but because the party system that we have now is so entrenched, going back to your point locally, right, in states and local elections, talking about ballot access, which we've talked to before, talking about being able to put it leaves no room for the diversity of thought and therefore you're basically pushing people into these extremes. You have just, you have just uh, laid down the, uh, the clarion call for uh, exploding the current system, uh, which I have advocated for 20 years. <laughs> I mean, and, and the reason, the reason Joy is because I grew up outside the system. So I really got to see it. I mean, I, I got to appreciate it. 
I didn't come up through the ranks of the GOP. I wasn't a college Republican or a teenage Republican or a young Republican or any of that. I, I, I made a conscious decision to join, took a lot of grief for it, still do. Um, and because there were, there were ideas and there were philosophies and practices and principles that, that resonated with me. I, you know, I, I'm not an anti-government Republican. I'm not, not a big government Republican. Um, I think government, I look, I've always looked at government uh, as a limited purpose entity. And, and that means that it has a limited purpose, which is, you know, provide for the common welfare, the common defense, provide that safety net to make sure we don't lose our own, that the, those who do fall, start to fall on hard times, that there's something there that they can, can hold them in place and, and then help lift them back up so they get back on their feet and continue their journey on their own terms. Um, so, you know, for me, when I served in office uh, as lieutenant governor, uh, I wanted to make the Maryland government work for the people because that's what they expected. And why did they expect that? Because they were the government. Our founders told us how this should work. This, our government is what? Of, by, and for people, not institutions, not politicians, not parties. Our founders didn't even want parties. I mean, there were big debates. The only outlier was Thomas Jefferson, and that's no surprise. <laughs> you know, everybody else was like, no, I don't think we should do parties. Even George Washington, when he, in his final message to the country, warned us this political party thing is not going to turn out well, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and he was right because it is institutionalized in just two lanes. Can you imagine if every highway in this country was just two lanes, <laughs> how we would do or get anywhere, right? So it, it's, it's important then for me at this point that we look at alternative measures of political engagement. And, I, and I'm working with a number of folks on that front. Um, and just as the Whigs gave birth to Republicanism, um, just as uh, the, you know, the Federalists gave birth to the Whigs and the Democratic Republicans gave birth to the Democratic Party, uh, Republicans are going to give birth to something. Well, they've given birth to Trumpism. And, <laughs> you yeah. see how that turned out. We see how that turned out. <laughs> that, that kid needs an ass whipping. But anyway, that... <laughs> We, we can work on that later. Uh, but, the, but the fact of the matter is something else should arise and needs to arise because of exactly what you said, uh, that, you know, there are a lot of competing and complementary points of view about how we govern ourselves. And that should be given the fullest expression possible within our political system. Uh, and so we're not a parliamentary system. We're a constitutional democracy. Uh, we are a republic. We're 50 independent states, uh, as Texas likes to remind us. Um, and, and so the, the reality of it is our political structure should reflect that. Uh, and I think it will in time. Mm. Well, we're going to take our final break. And when we come back, just briefly want to talk about that local aspect you talked about, because you did serve on, you know, a state party as well. Sure. But then to also give folks what 
give them some homework um, in terms of identifying what they do next in terms of defining or developing their own political ideology in this space that we are in. We'll come right back. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? We're back from our final break with Michael Steele. You, you lived up to <laughs> what I had on my list of the conversation <laughs> with you. So I appreciate that. But you also served, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the fact that, you know, from civics, we always want to focus it on the classroom and kids and not have a yeah. conversation of how adults who are living lives, trying to raise children, you know, jobs, running businesses or whatever, that we have to do a better job at providing entry points in education for those uh, of us who, yes, are busy, but, you know, as you mentioned, this democracy is of, for, and by the people, so it requires participation. The other piece is how our structure is set up is that, you know, just chiming in for presidential elections or being engaged on what's happening nationally when all this, a lot of stuff starts on the local and state level, and actually yeah. that's where a lot of the power still resides in our country is locally, is state-based, because we still live in the state's rights, <laughs> you know, sort of society. So I, I wonder, having served as a state chairman, having that kind of involvement in, on a local standpoint, you know, how do you believe people should engage on the local level as it pertains to uh, conservative ideology to the Republican Party, particularly because you mentioned even as chairman, you can't tell <laughs> the state chairman what to do. Right, right. So a couple of things real quick on that. The first thing fundamentally we need to know and appreciate um, is, is the gift that our founders gave us. And despite their own foibles and their own insecurities and their own racism and all of that, I still believe that what Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton and Washington and Adams, all of them, uh, and of course the women behind them, um, uh, put, out, put in front of us for today is the power that is, is found in three words. And for me, the most powerful words in all the documents, we the people, everything starts from there. And because it is a first time in history, a recognition that we, the people got this, we control this. And when you're looking at what's going on in the country, um, you have to understand and appreciate why what we see happening in Georgia matters to everyone. Why what we see happening uh, in uh, Minnesota matters to everyone. Um, and, and so we are connected in that sense and we have a civic responsibility to engage and respond um, in, in those regards. And so that means that you cannot just sit back and, and disconnect yourself from it. Those three words empower you um, at the ballot box. They empower you um, and your voice to demand and to hold accountable um, those that you have put in charge uh, to represent our interests. You can't walk away from that just because you cast a ballot and say, well, I'm done until the next election. No, you're not, baby. you got to stay on top. You have to persist in that leadership. 
because you've been empowered to lead. I get so angry when I hear young people check out. And I ask them one quick question. Do you have a job? Yeah, I have a job. Do you pay taxes? Yeah, well, you're engaged, baby, because they're taking your money and they're doing all kinds of stuff with it, right? They're taking, they're taking your, your, your lack of engagement uh, and they're using it against you and they're using it against others. What made 2020 stand out from all the elections that we've had in the modern era is that for the first time, Americans woke up and said, oh, hell no, no more. We can't, we can't allow this, this wrong to consistently persist over and over again. Now you got to take it to the next level. you got to look at the men and women you asked to represent you and, and ask, are you doing this right? Oh, wait a minute, you, you're down for taking away my voting rights after I voted? You don't like the way I voted, so you're now going to propose legislation under the guise of, you know, election integrity and safety to say, oh, all the black folks in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit, <laughs> y'all votes don't count? No, no, no. You do that to them. You're, I'm next. You think after if they're successful in Philadelphia that they're not going to come for you in 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 other parts of the country? Of course they are, because once you allow them get away with it over there, what's to stop them from from getting away with it here? That's the level of persistence and and perseverance in holding up the Constitution and holding up our rights that are granted thereunder. Um, so for me, this is, you know, it starts on the ground. I'm, you know, I, and you know where I learned that? I learned that from Mary and Barry. <laughs> God, God bless him. Mary and Barry was my political mentor. I, you know, I grew up in DC, right? And he, uh, he liked, he liked me. He said, because you're a different kind of Republican. <laughs> I get that a lot, but it's because he saw something, uh, and I saw something in, in, in what he did, um, Despite all of his personal faults and foibles, the man never lost sight of people. Mm -hmm. He never stopped believing and he never stopped mm -hmm. serving. Um, those are the kinds of leaders that we need. Um, and, and those are the kinds of people who have the interest of their community and their country first. That's why in 2020, I made the choice I made. I put my country over my party. I put my country over one man because we've never been about one man. George Washington taught us that. He stepped away from power. He didn't lean into it. He, in order for this fledgling idea of democracy and, and, and republicanism, not political republicanism, but the idea of a republic to work, he didn't want to be a king. No man should be a king. And yet we had someone who thought he should be. And I was not going to stand for that. And no citizen, if they believe in this, should stand for that. And that's what you need to do at the grassroots. You need to grow that up because up here, they're trying to mow it down. So, well, Chairman Steele, thank you so very much for taking time. I hope you enjoyed yourself, enjoyed I the conversation. I'm sorry, it took so long to get to class. <laughs> the registrar first and then I had to go to the workroom and then I got I had to go to the gym because 
I need to work on this. So finally <laughs> I'm in class. I made it. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for taking the opportunity. And thanks for the discussion thank um, you. <laughs> for that. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Thanks for listening. Uh,